This is WexCast from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. Today we're sharing a talk with one of our favorite people, filmmaker Jennifer Reeder. An Ohio State alum, former Wex intern, and Wexner Center Artist Residency Award recipient, Reeder has been making waves in the indie film world this fall with her feature debut as writer-director, the atmospheric thriller Knives and Skin. The work was completed with help from the Residency Award, and the talk followed the film's Columbus premiere at the WEX. Knives and Skin is now playing in theaters nationwide, and it's available to stream through IFC Films. We hope you enjoy her conversation with film video studio curator Jennifer Lang, a longtime supporter and friend of Readers, and Michael Lenick, a former WEX full-timer who's edited most of Readers' films, including this one. However, we recommend you enjoy this podcast after seeing the movie. The following chat is full of spoilers. I'm Jennifer Lang, curator of the Film Video Studio Program here at the Wexner Center for the Arts. I really couldn't be more thrilled and honored to be introducing tonight's film, and it's Columbus-born, Chicago-based director Jennifer Reeder. Here at the Wex, and probably to many of you in the audience tonight, Jennifer Reeder is family. I think biologically... A lot of people in the audience, right? Where's Peggy? There we go. A graduate of Ohio State University's film program and former intern at the WEX in the first years that it opened, Jennifer went on to attend graduate school at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where she made a series of videos featuring herself as a badass, vigilante, feminist known as White Trash Girl. Those videos, which have been written about by scholars and shown at the most prestigious galleries and museums around the world, propelled her into the art world spotlight. But from there, Jennifer turned to narrative filmmaking, a more conventional form perhaps, but one that she proceeded to make her indelibly unconventional mark on. In short films like A Million Miles Away and Blood Below the Skin, Jennifer's badass feminist vigilantes took the form of teenage girls. Aren't all teenage girls badass feminist vigilantes? Think so? (laughs) Who are wise beyond their years and brimming with supernatural powers. In tonight's film, Knives and Skin, which was supported by the WEX through an artist residency award, you'll see more of those characters woven throughout the story of a teenage girl's mysterious disappearance in a Midwestern town. Knives and Skin had its international premiere, auspiciously, at this year's Berlin International Film Festival and a U.S. premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. It was just picked up by IFC, so tonight really is just the beginning of what I hope, we all hope, will be a really robust theatrical life. After the film, I'll be joined on stage by Jennifer and the editor of Knives and Skin, Michael Lenick. Mike is also a familiar name and face here at the WEX because he is a former editor in the Film Video Studio Residency Program, where he began his editing relationship, creative relationship with Jennifer over 15 years ago. Like, really dates us all, I guess. Um, Mike has worked with Jennifer on nine or ten films through the studio residency program. I'll let Mike yell out and correct me. And a number of others, including Knives and Skin, as a freelance editor. You could say that the creative waters run really, really deep between the two of them, and we'll explore that in the Q&A <laughs> that follows. Now, please join me in welcoming Jennifer Reeder. So nervous. No, honestly, it's like 
this film premiered to a sold-out audience at the Berlin Film Festival. It was like a thousand-seat theater, and um, I feel more nervous tonight because my mom is here. <laughs> Um, and so many of my friends are here from um, actually like my childhood and, and my high school sort of years. And this film has a lot of um, autobiographical elements, uh, which we can talk about after, the after if we need to. But I, I start, actually started working at the Wexner Center the first day it opened um, as a volunteer passing out um, headphones for the tour of the of the building. So this, this building itself uh, feels like very much a part of just my history and, and, and who I am. I'm going to say thanks in no particular order. Uh, Bruce Bartu, who's in the production booth, uh, who was a boss of mine at the, um, a, a not very bossy boss, I would say, at the Drexel North, uh, which uh, helps me, you know, truly fall in love with um, films and, and filmmaking. And it, I, I can't even tell you how special it is to sort of bring a film that I have made back to uh, him to project. Uh, Clay Lowe and Ron Green are also here in the audience who were my first film instructors when I was studying here at uh, OSU. Uh, I saw, I saw the, Knives and Skin has been compared a lot to uh, the work of, of uh, David Lynch. And, um, I saw Blue Velvet for the first time at a, what was the movie theater? Do you guys, wasn't there a movie theater that was like on campus, like where the Buffalo Wild Wings is? What was that? Elisa, do you remember that? Was it? It was gross. That's all I have to say. <laughs> but that, but that, that changed a lot. I'm not actually, sh I don't remember what I told my mom I was doing that night, but I went to, mom, I went to go see Blue Velvet. But here I am. Yes, so my family is here tonight. Uh, my mom is here, I think my sister is coming, my, my uh, niece is here, my nephew is here. My, uh, my dad, who passed away three and a half years ago, uh, would have been very proud of me, although he always said that I should uh, work for National Geographic. <laughs> like, turn my filmmaking into that, because those films about bees and birds were very fascinating. Um, I call this film, I would describe it as like Midwestern Gothic, and which feels super, this is the first time it's actually screened in the Midwest, and, and I feel like we all will understand what that means, uh, Midwestern Gothic. Uh, I've always, so I've lived in Chicago for many years, something like 23 years or something. I've never, I've never written a, a film that's supposed to take place in Chicago. I've only written films that are supposed to take place here, and tried to Sometimes I've shot them here, and then sometimes I've tried to find facsimiles of here someplace else. Even when I shot a film in Germany, I was like, where can we find that looks like uh, Columbus, Ohio? Uh, I want to, I mean, endless thanks to Jennifer Lang, my sister in Jennifer Hood, who I've known for many, many years. I knew her in Chicago before she, before she moved here, uh, who has uh, been the most the most, the most, without question, that's not, a, that's not an overstatement, the most robust supporter of my visions throughout, you know, 14 years or something, maybe 13, I think that I was, I did one film before you were here. Um, when you find uh, people in your life who, especially as a creative person, who say, yes, I will help you do that, don't let those people go. 
ever. Uh, and somehow I've also managed to not let Jennifer down because it's a two-way street, right? I mean, people say, yeah, yes, we'll help you. But then you can't, like, fuck that up. Pardon my French. I get that from my mom. <laughs> She's so embarrassed right now. Um, but really, you know, when you find people who say, yes, I will help you do this, then you then you do it, and you do it at the highest level possible. And I just feel like um, I've, I've, you know, I'm super scrappy. You know, I've always been really a scrappy person, uh, and I will always be really scrappy. But I hope to never let you down, Jennifer Lang. Uh, and also a huge um, thanks to Michael Lennick, who has cut with the exception of maybe one of my films for the past 14 years. You know, that relationship is also, um, you know, like, uh, undefinable. You know, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I kind of hate when people on, on Facebook or social media in general are kind of like, I married my best friend, or my best friend is my best friend. You know, and... Um, <laughs> You know, sometimes I, I feel like I telling people who are actually my best friends, if you actually want me to do anything, anything, uh, ask Michael Lennick to ask me to do it, you know, because um, he really is someone who has, has uh, we have had a really symbiotic relationship over, over 14 years, creating, I think, um, some really interesting and innovative um, moves, not exclu excluding um, this one, and it's not without some um, tension. Let's just say that. Uh, but it's always with um, love and actually trying to make each other uh, be better. And he's also a, like a really brilliant filmmaker, and so it's really nice to have that relationship with him. Um, anyway, and and lastly, just uh, yeah, love and thanks to my mom. So I'm the youngest of five, and I think that she let my other four siblings, um, uh, I don't know, do it differently so that she could let me uh, be as weird as I wanted to be, which I think has helped me come to the place that I am right now. Uh, and I think I've learned from her. I'm a parent, and I have learned to let my own children, uh, you know, just live their lives and be who they want to be. And I think we should all um, honor the, the sort of, like, the people who uh, not only our children are, who our parents are, who each other are. So, yeah, I think that everything that you're about to see has to do with um, growing up in a place like central Ohio, uh, a college town, which had a lot of, you know, kind of interesting aspects. I mean, the I'm sure if you've lived here for long enough, you've seen High Street change a lot. I grew up when, like, South High Street was, like, punk clubs and, um, you know, record stores. And it's where I, where I when I was in high school, I, I sort of found my identity and, and found a place to um, escape. Uh, but my heart is here. Um, in, in Ohio, and I'm just so thankful that, you know, my mom let me be as weird as I, as I still am. Uh, I mean, she's kind of weird, too. <laughs> Truth be told. But I want to say this one thing, and then we should get on with the movie. Um, and speaking of, of mothers, 
the, the mothers in this film are not based on my mother. <laughs> uh, please stay for the Q&A. There'll be like a really robust Q&A where we can talk about the film. You can complain or comment. But I also have stuff to give away. Free stuff to give away that obviously you're going to want to sell, resell on eBay <laughs> for twice the profit. Anyway, thank you so much, Central Ohio, and enjoy Knives and Skin. Congratulations, Jennifer. Thanks. That was really awesome to see on the big screen. Um, Mom, are you still awake? Okay. <laughs> so I thought I, I would start, just because I know you so well, and I know this project so well, and it's really awesome that we have Mike here on stage, too, because I feel like we're all really strangely connected. <laughs> Um, so this is like a dream Q&A. Um, this film came to be in kind of an unconventional way. For some of you may have seen Jennifer's short films here before, but I'd just like to talk about uh, I mean, it's sort of a two-pronged question. One is um, the road to making this film and the sort of stories that you were telling in your short films that are very much related to the story you're telling in this film. And, and sort of the strategy of those short films to making this, um, getting funding for the feature film. Could you talk a little bit about that process? Sure. So here's the funny thing. In the U.S., um, there's almost no respect for the short film as a form, right? So you make a short film in hopes of making a feature film. And the feature filmmaking world is completely impossible. You know, everything works against you. Um, but I had had success very, very early on with, um, like, literally the, the short film that I made for my graduate thesis project was nominated for a prize through ZDF, which is a huge broadcasting company in Germany. Mm -hmm. So I was like, hmm. Uh, the film was called White Trash Girl through ZDF. And uh, I recently made a film through Arte, through Germany and, and France also. Uh, so I thought, oh, huh, the Europeans, interesting. <laughs> um, but I ended up making a lot, I mean, I have a lot of ideas. I'm absolutely not the person who, if you, you know, encounter me at a party and someone's like, what are you doing? I wouldn't be like, well, I'm working on that feature length film that I've been working on for the past 10 years. You know, I'd be like, oh, I've made four films this past year, you know, because um, I have a lot of ideas. And, and short the short form, it's like you can make them fast, you can make them cheap, you can uh, I could I could send them overseas and they could win prize money or they could be broadcast, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and so, like in the meantime, I was always thinking about making a feature length project, and those short films um, screened at Sundance, at Berlin, at London. Uh, Rotterdam, you know, on and on. So what I was experimenting with in the short form had been totally vetted through all of these, um, you know, coveted channels. So when, um, you know, the producers came to me and said, you know, I hear you have a feature-length script, like, we would like to make it. And I said, yeah, okay, cool, but I'm going to make it entirely on my own terms because I, you know, like, I have a proven track record, like the stuff that I've been thinking about and the way that I've been thinking about it and how I want to make a film and how I want to um, cast it and the music and on and on and on and on. 
Um, yeah, it's been vetted, so here's what we're going to do. And that, you know, honestly happened, and that's what you just saw. And we, you know, it premiered at Berlin. Fast forward, IFC bought it. You know, I mean, there's something to be said about slow and steady wins the race. Mm -hmm. And that's very maybe Midwestern of me, but it's really, I think, true. Like, I was not the person who was kind of like, it's a feature-length film or nothing. It's a million-dollar budget or nothing. I mean, Mike knows this. Honestly, if someone's like, we have $5 to make a film, I was like, let's do it. Right. You know, I mean, what kind of filmmaker are you if you're not constantly thinking about the next film that you're going to make and you don't even think about the budget? You're kind of like, ah, oh, we're just going to DIY it the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I came to filmmaking, honestly, through like third wave riot girl feminism and it's never stopped. It's all DIY. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, like... In a way, like this was, this was also really DIY. So I would just say to any filmmakers out there, like just please, you know, for the love of um, Deborah Granick, you know, <laughs> keep making short films, you know, and experiment and send them out. And mm-hmm. I think that that urge is really, really comes through. And also, what emerges if you look at your body of short films and this work is this really tourist kind of um, like vocabulary that you've created and I kind of wonder if your thoughts on you know could you have made this feature film 10 years ago or did you you know how did making those short films really kind of um, I don't know you're perfecting these things you see characters who recur you see wounds that recur you see um, prosthetics that recur you know these sort of images and, and songs even. Um, could you talk a little, yeah, how, how do you think Knives and Skin would be the same if you hadn't made all those short films? Well, I mean, kind of almost, well, over 10 years ago, we made Accidents at Home and How They Happen, you know, which is a feature-length film that um, had a, a weird, small life, but I, I, we totally stand by it. Um, yeah, that experimented with lots of wounds and prosthetics um, sad people and super sad people who have trouble connecting. Yes, uh, Jeremy Boland did the script, but I don't think, or did the score, but I don't think that people sing in that Mm-mm, film. No. Um, but you know, but yeah, yeah. Ten years ago, we made a film that was like the most DIY feature-length film, and I, 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 I don't know why that film didn't do better. I actually think it's going to be like the cult classic. You know, someone's going to discover that in like ten minutes. And that thing is going to forget about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I don't think that I could have made this film, this film, you know, 10 years ago. I don't actually think that I wanted to make this film 10 years ago. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I talked a little bit about my origins as uh, someone who was working in visual art. And I'll tell you something. Right after graduate school, you know, I was very interested in doing feature-length um, narrative films. And if you mentioned that to anyone else in the room, they were like, are you fucking kidding me? No self-respecting intellectual feminist is making movies, Jennifer. And I was like, yeah, no, totally. Of course not. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm going to just keep doing installations that no one buys or watches, you know? It was a very, it was a very different time, you know? It was like not a time where that was what was interesting in my circle of people, um, so it took me a while. I came to narrative feature-length filmmaking by kicking in the basement door. That's what I say. Mm-hmm. 
I think part of this, uh, the visual style, the pacing, the sort of feel of your films in a great part is, is due to this relationship with Mike that you've had. I mean, a lot of the movie is made in the editing and you have this such a close creative collaboration and have made, only Mike knows the exact number, <laughs> so many films. Um, you know, it kind of that, that relationship started here at the Wexner with... Um, the Closer Stockholm, mm -hmm. correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And you had made Tiny Plastic Rainbow before that when correct. I was here. Correct. Um, and with a different editor that you brought in. But, um, you know, can maybe Mike, you could talk a little bit about this creative relationship and collaboration that's, it just like grows and evolves and is really, really has been very cool to watch. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because you asked like if you could have made this 10 years ago, but. Ten years ago, you kind of started to make this with a short called Seven Songs About Thunder, which has like a girl in a band uniform who dies. Her name is Carolyn, and it's like all is Carolyn Slobotnik is still Carolyn? here? By the way, yeah, okay, just stay is. here. Just don't yeah. leave. Okay, please. <laughs> um, that, yeah, I think like we started because we both come from an art background. We both made more experimental work, and I think we both were kind of finding narrative together. So I think we were sort of like. Why don't we just try it? Why don't we see what happens? And I think other people would be like, why would you put a dissolve between those two scenes? And it, it just kind of made sense to us. And I think we've just been able to kind of build off of that over the years. Yeah. I think neither, neither one of us, I mean, we both are filmmakers, but neither one of us went to film school. Mm -hmm. uh, we made films in art school. And I think that that is a huge difference. You know, I think that we both have allowed ourselves um, what studio artists allow themselves, which is to think about color and texture mm -hmm. and layering and just the composition of the frame. So we have made some super weird moves, you know, over the entire course of, of, these, of these films. And it's like working out, you know? I mean, it worked out. It's like you just have to take some risks. I just hate the idea sometimes as, a, as an instructor now at the university level where you know, students make these really safe moves. I'm kind of like, where are the risks? You know, I mean, um, I think White Trash Girl was was mentioned, you know, in the introduction. And God, all I wanted to do with White Trash Girl was irritate my advisors. You know, I just wanted to like uh, like upend the cart, and I just wonder where that is. And and I still want to upend the cart. You know, I, I have no interest in, I mean, this film has been super polarizing. There are people who are like, I love it, it's sublime. And then people are kind of like, I don't get it. Or people who don't, if you're a filmmaker, don't ever read the reviews on Letterboxd, you know, because they're just kind of like, this is the worst film I've ever seen. You know, but to them, I'm kind of like, that's cool. You know, I don't mind. Uh, but I think that it's like, unless you are taking risks, you know, like visually or in terms of how you tell a story or the characters you write, then just hang it up. You know, if you want to redo something that's already been made, then forget about it. But I think that like going to art school, you know, making moving image work in an art school context has given both of us the opportunity in an editing suite to be like, what if, <laughs> you know, what if that the tiger shirt <laughs> gave her advice. And the secret is we actually tried that in a previous film and it didn't work, you know? Yeah. It really didn't work. And I was like, 
just hold that thoughts. I'm going to try it again later on, you know, and it, it, it worked. The comparisons to David Lynch are just come and come, and, and, and they're definitely there. And one thing that I think about when I'm watching your films, and I think about Lynch and um, Angelo Badalamente, like the music is so much sets the tone of those films. And your use of music is so evocative and so lush, and it is one of the textures of the films. Then you're also using all these like 80s songs too, which feel, you know, very much like this is like there's something of you in this story, right? It's like that's your teenage years. Those are your teenage years, and a lot of my teenage years too, and probably a lot of people's in this audience. How did you come? I'm trying to remember the first film where you used Sing. well. It's I mean, it probably goes back to Tiny Plastic Rainbow. Where did you use Waiting for a Girl Like You? In that film? Uh, that was in... Or Closer the, Stockholm? Closer Stockholm. Closer Stockholm. So... It was like 2004. 2004. And before that? No, it's uh, Seven Songs About Thunder. No, but it was in the, it was in the Closer it's Stockholm, too. Yeah. I, I, yes. I sang in she the Closer... And I oh, that's sang, right. Oh, yeah. 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 Come on. But it also goes back to Nevermind. Oh, right. I of course. Sang Nevermind is true. Totally. That's... Okay. You win Final Jeopardy, Mike. <laughs> okay. Um... She sings Nevermind, or lip syncs Nevermind in slow motion. I, I lip sync uh, Smells Like Teen so, Spirit. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, how, first of all, maybe just talk about, because even in your, your um, more video art pieces or installation pieces, like your collaborations with musicians, experimental musicians, um, is really, has always been so, like, so much a part of your work. Um, can you talk about a little bit in terms of this film? Uh, sure. I mean, I think that... Um, you know, I think that has a lot to do with just, you know, growing up here in central Ohio, you know, and uh, the, uh, I grew up in a house on Arden Road. My mom still lives there. You know, I go and I will, I will sleep tonight in the room that I slept in when I was a teenager. In the closet in that room are like Simple Minds lyrics. There are. Odes to Tommy Culp. Some of you will <laughs> appreciate that. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, music was our religion. You know, like, you're having a bad day, you go into your room and you, yeah, you put on your favorite record, you know? And I think there were, like, the 80s was, like, this kind of golden age of, of, um, of teen films, even though now, of course... Some of them are quite problematic, you know, but we, you know, there was something to consume about about that that felt like really like religion. And so, um, you know, for me, the, also the reason that I've made so many films about young people is that you can kind of like pack the film full of music and like fashion and makeup and um, literary references or like cultural references because... Um, young people are only just constantly like trying on their identity through all of that stuff, you know? Um, eventually, as adults, we kind of settle into it for better or for worse. We're kind of like, all right, fine, this is who I am, you know? But it's such a radically beautiful time, you know, when young people are just, it's like, it's just this constant kind of like shifting of, of um, you know, identity that, that is grounded a lot in, um, in music, I mean, some of my, my very kind of like much earlier our projects, yeah, definitely, you know, in, like had music involved in 
um, in a in a very you know punk rock way. I never got any of the you know rights to any of those uh, to any of that stuff, and that was something that felt like very akin to maybe how arts films or art you know video whatever is like um, uh, made, but I guarantee you that all of the songs in this film have been paid for. Oh, definitely. <laughs> like, yeah, I've got the bills to pay. Yes, they have. And the score for the... So, so there's like the songs, right? right? There's all these beautiful 80 songs, which is part of my autobiography, or autobiography where um, like those are songs I listened to when I was a teenager. So, And also those were songs that probably the parents in the films listened to, you know? So it was kind of like, you know, Lisa Harper, who's the grieving mother, who's the choir teacher. Like, why wouldn't she... You know, rearrange our lips are sealed or New Order's Blue Monday. You know, for the choir, um, or why wouldn't she have taught them to sing? You know, a very lamentation version of like girls just want to have fun. You know, because that was the that those are her songs, right? Um, but Nick Zinner from the Yeah Yeah Yeahs did the musical score, so everything that's outside of the singing was done by Nick Zinner, which I think is just like. I've, I'm totally obsessed with this, with his score, which I can say because I didn't contribute to one note of that, you know. But all of my films have always been like, for better or for worse, just totally jam packed with music. No, you can tell it's an important part of the uh, of the film itself. We'll open it up to the audience in just one second. I have one last question. This exploration of teenage girls and, and this sort of like you talk about them as being, you know, it is sort of this magical time, right? Um, but you're also exploring, maybe f- not for the first time because you have done it in earlier films, but um, middle-aged women mm-hmm. and adults. Mm-hmm. And there's this parallel that kind of, maybe it's just because I'm a middle-aged woman right now who remembers being a teenager. <laughs> you know, it's this combination of nostalgia and also like empowerment, but this, you know, this idea that the teenage girls are, you know, they're finding themselves and exploring them, their identities and selves, but in such like powerful ways while their parents are kind of struggling to just understand who they are in this world and connect with each other and even connect with their kids. I mean, the teenage stuff, you know, it's been in your work, but the, you know, this, this, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, it's your own age too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how that feeds into your writing and your process and thinking about film and representation of women on film? Yeah, sure. So, uh, gosh, I mean, you know, the first film I made after I um, became a mom was about, um, a mother, and uh, someone had asked me shortly after that, like, how has your work changed since you've, you know, become a mother? And I was so insulted. I was like, it hasn't at all. My work is just the same. I was such a moron. I was like, oh, from that moment onwards, I've only made films about moms, you know? Um, and hopefully about, like, really, like, complicated moms, you know, are just, like, complicated adult women. I think that both in real life... And cinematically, you know, women after they um, either become mothers or even and after a certain age are just like completely like dismissed, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, uh, don't dismiss us, you know. Like we we have like a lot of agency, and um, we're you know 
extremely complex. And I think that motherhood is really complex. Um, I have three children. My older two children and Jennifer's children are almost the identical same age. (laughs) So, and we were both pregnant when I was making... Accidents. Accidents. Was it, right? Yeah, because Jed's in accidents. Anyway, at some point, at some point... Jennifer and I have been pregnant at the exact same time, you know, and there was something that was really intensely special about, you know, working through um, creative projects where you sort of like, you were the one who was like, when's this going to be due? Like, how are you going to do it? And I was like, we're going to do this and we're going to swirl it around and yada, yada, yada. And this guy over here kind of caught in the middle, um, both gigantically, you know, pregnant multiple times. And that that was not lost on me, you know, sort of like how powerful that is. And, um, ex, you know, I have an extremely, extremely close relationship uh, with my own mother. I mean, do you agree, Mom? We're close. <laughs> I think we're close. Um, I do. I and I and I and I have an extremely close relationship with the with the mother of my partner, too. Ruth Ann is here, too, who's the mother of, of my partner, Nate. I mean, I just, I do not discount motherhood. I mean, moms are rad, and moms are weird, and moms are complicated. And I just think that in real life, and certainly in cinema, it's just not authentic almost ever. So in this film, I really wanted to have a group of moms who... One, we have a grieving mother, you know, who goes to this extreme. You know, we see this scene in the car, you know, which has really shook a lot of people, you know. And I have just said, you know, can you imagine the most unspeakable situation, you know, like not knowing where your child is mm-hmm. and you smell your child? Like, why wouldn't you just follow that scent? Or... Like a mother who maybe has been told she could never have children again or she's had multiple miscarriages and wants to be pregnant again, you know, or wants the attention of being pregnant again and so fakes a pregnancy. Like that's actually a thing that happens, you know. Or another mother who so feels so disconnected with the idea of parenting, you know, that she has kind of developed a kind of a sickness to her environment, You know, I mean, these things happen. None of the stuff I made up, like these are actually things that are rooted in reality, you know? Um, So anyway, all of you on the audience have mothers and all of your mothers are super complicated and weird. Um, So just know that. Well, so Mike, having worked with two complicated weird mothers, (laughs) you don't have to talk about me here, (laughs) Um, but but can you just talk about, from your perspective, like you worked at the Wexner Center for... uh, 15 plus years um, and worked up with scores of artists. We, we host in the residency program about 25 artists every year who come to finish their projects at various stages. You've worked with lots of them. Like, what is it about the relationship with Jennifer that was different? Yeah. Well, I think uh, <laughs> you... you... I, can't, I can't even imagine what this answer is going to be. No, I think you always trust me, and I always trust you. And mm. I think that's not always the case with an artist who likes to have their fingerprints all over their work. And from the filmmaking side of things, like you understand that filmmaking is a collaboration. And I think you know like 
if something's not working, like I'm going to try something, and it doesn't mean it's the only thing I'm going to try, or that I'm going to, you know, lock it up in cement and say we have to do this. You're just very like trusting and very into collaboration, and not just with me, but with your DP, with your production designer, with everyone, so that, um, yeah, like we want to help you make this movie and other movies because we want to be involved in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think that like I would just say that it's it's the case that with everyone who I've worked with for multiple years, you know, Mike is the person I've worked with the most, and um, and we, I mean, we sit and ask ourselves sometimes like, is this too weird or whatever? Like, let's try it. Yeah. And then sometimes we say like, let's never ask ourselves if this is too weird. You know, and it's been really nice because I think there's many, many other probably editors who, if you say, let's let's like do a cross dissolve and then make those eyeglasses glow, they'd be like, absolutely not, never, you know? And, you know, he tries it out. And the same thing with also my DP, you know, I mean, I really have, I'm a little bit of a creature of habit and I t tend to um, surround myself with people who... Um, who I trust, you know, who who will also say like that's not a good idea, but also say say just kind of like yeah, let's try it, you know, let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. That's what happened. Let's see what happens. That's what happened. Yeah. Um, any questions? Can I say the before, before the questions start? Can I say something? So we have these T-shirts that I usually give out um, to audiences. I brought one tonight. In when was Seven Songs About Thunder? Twenty two thousand nine. Two thousand ten. Yeah. Okay, we shot it in 2009. In 2009, we were shooting a short that has a lot of similarities to this. We needed a girl to be dead in a band uniform. It was the first time I had a dead girl in a band uniform. And Carolyn Slobotnik, stand up please, played that dead girl. <laughs> um, really, she did a great job, everybody. But what kind of happened is that in my brain, every... Then I, then I kept having like dead or missing girls who were always named Carolyn because the dead girl in Seven Songs About Thunder didn't really have a name. Um, fast forward to Knives and Skin and the dead girl's named Carolyn Harper. So I have a t-shirt that says, um, have you seen Carolyn Harper? And this absolutely has to go to Carolyn Sablotnik because she's fully alive <laughs> and amazing. But I feel like somehow just... This is really a testament to how a, a kind of non-actress who agrees to play a dead girl can become iconic. You're very welcome. <laughs> okay, now I'll take questions. But also I have some other... Yeah, I have some... If you ask a good question, you might get a button that says, bitchy tease. I have buttons that say, cunty slut. I think I have one tiny horse that you could hide in your body <laughs> and then give it to your lover. I also have a sticker that you could secretly put on someone's back that says, I treat girls like shit. And I also have a calling card that you could slip to someone that says, one should never underestimate cunnilingus. We could do trivia. Yeah, so somebody will get something. Okay. <laughs> Questions from the audience? Yeah. Okay, so two-part question. Uh, what was, I guess I don't understand the whole point of the, the 
glowing blood, the glowing glasses, uh, that kind of threw me off a little bit. And I'm sorry, I forgot the second part, but I'll go to the secondary second part. Uh, what was the point of the, the hiding of the notes and the figurines? Oh, Lord. <laughs> There's a lot of magic in Jennifer's film. Okay. Uh, okay, so... Okay, the glowing stuff has a lot to do with the, the idea that, okay, so a dead girl is a trope in a lot of horror and thrillers, and it's very problematic. So I wanted to make um, a film where the dead girl has will and has agency. So even though this is not like a spiritual or religious film, I wanted her spirit to, to feel like it's living on in her glasses, you know, like... And her blood is glowing, and she makes this like mark on this boy's head, and the 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 wound won't heal. You know, like she's this dead girl, but she has will and agency. You know, I mean, her aura lives on. You know, oh boy. Okay, so then the next part is, well, sometimes you like somebody. <laughs> and for people who have vaginas, it might be the case that you would want to hide a note, a secret note that might say, I love you a whole bunch. You might want to hide that note in your vagina and then give it to your lover or a teapot or the Statue of Liberty (laughs) or a flamingo. Or a cat, or what else? What is a geode? Fool's gold. So no, I mean that that whole scene was really about like the secrets of teenage girls. Trust me, teenage girls have secrets. Adult girls have secrets. Um, No, it was really about like the secret language of like lovers, and you know the desire is precise, you know? All you people in this audience are total weirdos, you know? Like, your desire is completely precise and personal. It's none of my business. Um, So this film has a lot to do with, like, the precision of grief and the precision of desire, and that desire is idiosyncratic. Grief is idiosyncratic. What do you want? Do you want anything? Do you want a horse to hide in your vagina? (laughs) Oh, you want a cunty slut? Great. Were you fine? Oh. Oh, okay. It's a cunnilingus card, but I get what you're, I get what you're saying. Wait, it's a business card? It's a calling yeah. card. I'll, I'll come. I'll come. All right. Great. There you go. It's, it's super... Look at this. It's like, it's like metallic pink on black. I love it. Great. You're welcome. All right. Next up. Uh, yes, right there. He did not kill her. He didn't kill her. It felt really important that um, this was not a murder. So in the morgue, the sheriff says um, she died of a... It was a, like, a, like a heart attack. It was a heart or heart plumbage. He did. Well, something will happen to him. I feel that way. No, no, no. That, that's a good point. I mean, you know, I think that... Um, in that moment when he leaves her and she says, I hate you. I hate you with all my heart right now. I mean, this is maybe 
it's not, I don't want it to be like too sort of esoteric or subtle, but that kind of hate and the idea that someone didn't accept that no means no was like too much for her. And then, and then she hit her head, which, you know, maybe bled out, like maybe the head injury is not certainly enough to kill someone. But I do think that he, he has remorse and is, he's not sure how to deal with anything that's happening to him, which honestly, I don't think that that's actually far off, you know, from how a lot of uh, young people kind of deal with trauma, you know, in our lives, but he doesn't get away with it. For sure. I feel like the wound is also this symbol of yeah. lingering like pain and like it's not over for him at all. Mm-hmm. He's, right. He's changed by the end of the film, it, it feels. Right. And he, and he with his like weed-seeking grandmother, you know, does, you know, try to call the authorities and, you know, trying to kind of figure it out. And we actually cut out a scene where he goes with the sheriff and the grieving mother to the quarry to... And looks and looks around, you know. But it was something that felt redundant. So there was a scene where you maybe have a more specific idea that he really is trying to also help and figure out what happened. But it's okay that it's a little bit more mysterious. No. What, what would you like? What do you need? I tea. Great. Give her a bitchy tease. Thank you. Um, oh, uh, yes, you actually right there. Yes, you. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, but I'll tell you something. I mean, I feel like I need to speak to that because, you know, as a filmmaker, I mean, I think of my films as a form of social justice and casting matters. Casting in front of the camera and casting behind the camera matters. Um, at some point, the script there was there were no there was there were I mean there were there were you know broad genders attached, but no race attached to anybody, you know. And I wanted to see who we ca- like who we auditioned, you know, and figure out like you know who's who. The only person who I knew would be a young woman of color was um, Charlotte, who's this the super gothy punky. Yeah, you know, and I and I exactly like I knew there had that she had to be this kind of like black girl magic, you know, that she really had to be this incredible kind of outstanding, you know, queen and, and emblem, and then everything else could kind of spin out from there. Uh, and my the DP who I've worked with uh, for maybe seven years or something um, is of color, and so he. 100% knows how to, you know, um, adjust for skin tones. The interesting thing when we col- did the color grading um, in Poland was that the first pass, you know, this woman who was incredible, a great colorist, sort of ha- had never color graded for dark skin tones. And we have a lot of like very dark skin tones. I mean, it's a whole range, you know, from very pale to, to very dark. And uh, 
it was an interesting learning curve. We're, we're like, no, the, the scene is dark, but like that person has nostrils and eyes and a beard, you know? And so then she figured it out. You know, she understood like, oh yeah, how, how do I like light for the, or how do I color grade for like this skin tone, but keep like everything else kind of like dark, et cetera. And I think after we left, you know, I was like, you could, you know, you're going to be like the sought after, you know, for decades now as someone who can actually like color grade for different skin tones in, in all of Poland. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, and I always wanted this film to feel really diverse. I mean, I, you know, when I was in high school here, I went, went to Whetstone and then I went to Fort Hayes. And I graduated from Kaz. Yay! I mean, I don't want to be all Kamala Harris about this, but you know, like from fifth grade on, you know, I was part of like desegregation. You know, I was like bus to Bretnell, like in fifth grade, and I don't know, like there was something about just like my community has always been, you know, diverse, and I live in I've lived in Chicago, and so when I write a story now, it's like. It just has lots of like really you know beautiful diverse faces. Like I will never not make a story that ha that has lots of you know shades in that story. And as an educator, you know what's not lost on me is when so for instance like I remember showing a class uh, Pariah this beautiful D. Reese film. You know about these. Uh, it's a queer film about uh, like a uh, young African American woman who's a poet. And at that time in my screenwriting class, there were a lot of you know like young African American women in the class. And like turning on the lights after we screened that film, and and it was just like these young women who had access to a lot of like really much more like mainstream films, but would never kind of be like, what's what are the kind of like queer, you know, women of color indie films that we should be watching right now, you know? But but I realized that when someone in an audience sees themselves on a screen, it's a game changer. So, you know, there's plenty of films about white women, you know? Uh, like, why not dig deep and try and authentically do this responsible thing and and make a film that potentially reaches uh, an audience of people who uh, see themselves, especially young people who see themselves, you know, on a screen for the first time and feel seen, see, feel seen, you know? What do you need? What do you need? Buttons? Do you want, do you want some buttons? I, I do, but I have one more. Okay, lay it on me. Yeah, of course. No, I'll, I'll, I'll make my answer shorter. The hairdresser was actually a drag queen. Going into that, we said, you know, there's lots of like, you know, of color hair. Can you deal with that? And she was like, yep, I can do it. Oh. That's why they don't shout out 
Sure. So there's, I'll, I'll try and keep it brief, but like the, I wanted the film to have kind of a, an odd internal logic, you know? So uh, I'll start with the last question. So, you know, in certain, all sorts of aspects of life, we have these kind of like safe words, you know, like Mike, you and I are going to go to party. Okay. And if I'm having a horrible time, I'm going to say the word popcorn and then we leave. Right. I mean, it's like, that's kind of a thing. So I kind of like took that to a kind of extreme, an extreme place, you know, where if this guy who was organizing a search party had these very elaborate cues, you know, like, look, if you find her, say this, if you, if she's dead, say this, if she, blah, 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 say this. And if you just need some help, say girls just want to have fun, you know? And so then at the football game, right, the girls get this mysterious text message from Carolyn that says, girls just want to have fun, which is sort of saying Carolyn needs help. And then yet again, at the at the end when, you know, her mother is sobbing and says, like, I'm useless, and they say, no, you taught us how to sing, you know, they say, they sing girls just want to have fun. Like, there's, this, there's little, like, loops of logic. I mean, I'm not saying, like, if you don't understand that, then kind of, like, you have no business being in this audience. You know, that's not what I'm saying. But I think that, like, I tried to set up this very specific kind of um, pattern and, and puzzle where all of these things that seem like non sequiturs actually are grounded in the internal logic of the film, which truly is meant to actually kind of hover above reality. You know, I just wanted you guys to, um, just you, not any other audience, but just you, to sort of, like enter, I don't know, a kind of a cinematic world and stay there for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I've got one question. All right, uh, I really love how all the people were singing together but not together. So how was it possible to make the people sing a cappella and not in the same place to let them make them be able to harmonize while it's one beat and on key without being able to Are you Are you a singer or a musician? Both? Okay. Whew. Okay. I don't do it, it, any of those things, but I've worked uh, through multiple films with a woman named Jen Lennon who used to be a conductor for the Chicago Children's <coughs> Choir. She is herself a musician. She's a composer, a singer. And also we cast girls who could sing. Not necessarily professional singers, but we cast girls who could sing. Um, so three of the songs we recorded ahead of time and so the girls kind of lip synced. It was um, Our Lips Are Sealed and uh, Blue Monday, which were both in the choir classroom. And then we did a version of um, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me that actually got cut, but it's a lovely version. Anyway, but for instance, a good example is um, I'll Stop the World and Melt With You, right when those two girls are singing. And so... Um, Jen composed one that was the melody and one that was the harmony. So when we uh, were filming, uh, let's say, Kayla, I could say Kayla who has the big hair, Emma, but they both have big hair, but um, they had little earpieces that they were, um, that they had listened to multiple times. So they were like singing to the ear. In, they were synchronizing their own songs, but one of them was the melody, one of them was the harmony, and then we combined the two. And the same thing in Promises, Promises, uh, it was the same thing. Everyone had 
an earpiece that they sang to that was like a different kind of like version of their part of the song. I'm not saying, I'm not recommending that necessarily, you know, to anyone who's making a film, but it was, um, that's how we did it. That's how we did it. So that, so that we could synchronize everyone to certain, you know, certain songs, people who can sing and people who couldn't sing. But the, the songs in this film, I think, are what, I don't know, maybe set it apart from um, every other film that will be made this year. <laughs> no, but the, but the songs, you know, I think if you, if you know any of those songs, you know, they're, they're like stuck in your heart. But then to listen to, you know, something like, yeah, even like Our Lips Are Sealed, sung as a kind of a eulogy, you know? I mean, I think it's really, hopefully it's really, it's, it feels meaningful. We're going to do one more question right there. Oh, yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up. So I really wanted this whole film to feel, again, like it was hovering above reality. But I also wanted it to feel like like super femme. You know, like really, I'm not saying feminine. We all own pink and purple, you know, but kind of this like really femme, uh, magenta, purple, even these kind of cyans. Like we just wanted the whole thing to like, vibrate, I don't know, like femme power on some level. And so my DP was totally behind that. And the gaffer who's in charge of kind of like setting all the lights, um, he was totally behind that. The very first day of shooting, you were there on that day. It was in one of the kitchens of the normal house. And, and, my, and my gaffer set in the very, very back of the scene, set a, a kind of a pink light that was kind of spilling out onto the floor. And he came back to me. We were looking at, in the monitor and he said, is that too weird? And I said, let's never, ever say that again. Let's just assume that, like, too weird is exactly where we want to be, you know? And I just think that, you know, again, because I went to art school, not film school, I, you know, light is important, color is important, texture is important. Like, it just doesn't matter to me that it doesn't feel totally realistic, you know? I just want um, an audience to have an experience that feels immersive, um, Cinematic, we shot with um, vintage anamorphic lenses, you know, so also the kind of like the subtleties of all those colors is deeply important. But the, but I wanted this film to really v vibrate with this um, really kind of like s specific um, tone, you know. And at the end of the day, this film is, is, has a lot to do with just, um, you know, friendship as a survival strategy, and it's not a happy ending, but I think it's a hopeful ending. Um, I will just say one thing. This is, I know we're, we're done. So I will just say that the, um, uh, I said that there were some things that were autobiographical. Oh, yeah, we didn't get into that. <laughs> I never sold my mother's underwear. Yet. I haven't yet. <laughs> the night is young. <laughs> um my mother was a totally engaged mother, etc. But when I was a senior in high school, the student teacher in my British literature classroom uh, sent me love poems, and I thought every, I thought we all got love poems. 
And so the kind of, and it went on and on. Like he, he called my house a bunch of times and um, he was maybe 28. I was like 17 and was, he was totally courting me when I was in high school. It, it took me a long time, you know, to, to sort of, and I was not damaged by that. Nothing, nothing happened. Like I said, I didn't, you know, I didn't sell him my mother's drugs or anything like that. But I always, you know, I, it, did, it took me a long time to, um, to realize that myself and like every person, every young person, but in, in specific, every young girl is, you know, at the moment that she leaves her house and sometimes even in her own house is just trying to like live her life. And she is surrounded by adults who have nothing more, you know, their agenda is to do everything they can to like disrupt that evolution. Um, and it took me a long time to realize, like, as an adult, just thinking, like, what was that guy thinking? Like, did he think that we were going to, like, date, you know? Or I don't know what, like, he understood it was illegal, it was unethical, all of these things. Um, and so this this film also has, you know, it's like it has a lot to do with just aspects of um, consent and that the horror, there's the horror of not knowing where your child is, and there's the horror of being a young person um, and having your normal human, human like evolution uh, being disrupted on a daily basis by you know adults who are indulging in their wants and their desires uh, with no regard you know with no regard to you know consent or or boundaries um, yeah so. Uh, we could find that guy probably. I don't know where he is now. But um, I've got two daughters. <laughs> I know, I know. And I've got three sons. You know, I've got three sons who, you know, I always like early in the morning. They're like waking up, sitting at like sitting at the table, rubbing their eyes, eating their cereal. And I'm like, let's talk about consent. You know, and they're kind of like, Mama, please. You know, but it's it's. Um, this film is also. I want it to be entertaining. I want people to to find. You know, like interested in it if you're a cinephile or if you're just, you know, uh, someone who likes 80s music. But I also think that it's a film that can start a conversation around consent and um, around perceptions of, you know, difficult mothers. Um, I think in terms of, you know, cinema, I think it's a film that could start conversations around, like, why we are obsessed with images of dead girls, etc. Um Anyway, but I'm on. I'm making something else right now, so stay tuned for that. Thank you. I was going to ask Thank you about you. that. Thank you. No, it's fine. Thank you, guys. Woo. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jennifer. That was Knives and Skin filmmaker Jennifer Reeder talking with Wex Film Video Studio curator Jennifer Lang and editor Michael Lenick. For what's next at the Wex, check out our events calendar at wexarts.org. I'm Melissa Starker for the Wexner Center for the Arts. Thanks for listening.